We're continuing our study here in the book of Romans uh, in our uh, evenings together, and I'm told you trying to work our way through this material, 9, 10, and 11, on a kind of a uh, faster track than normal. And, and we're looking at the overall issue of the tragic unbelief of the nation of Israel, uh, the fact that Israel has rejected the gospel, the fact that they've rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And I told you previously that chapters 9, 10, and 11 really go together as a unit. They're dealing with Israel's past rejection of uh, the gospel, and they're pointing toward and, and the person of Christ and pointing towards uh, Israel's future and, and her restoration. Now, we saw in our study through chapter 9 that Israel is in a current state of unbelief, and that current state of unbelief doesn't catch God by surprise whatsoever because, listen, that's exactly what he said was going to happen, right? That's exactly what he said was going to happen. Uh, Israel's unbelief was consistent with God's promises. It's consistent with his person and, and consistent with his prophetic revelation. Uh, Israel's unbelief really confirms the word of God because through the prophet Isaiah, he said some 750 years or so before Christ physically came, uh, he predicted that would happen, that Israel would stumble over the stumbling stone, the, the rock of offense. Again, that being the person of Jesus Christ. So Romans 9 is a, a fascinating portion of scripture that teaches us side by side, uh, both the, the doctrine of divine sovereignty in the salvation of man, and right alongside that, the doctrine of human responsibility. Both are true biblically. Both have to be uh, taught and believed uh, to have a balanced view of what the Scripture says on salvation. Uh, God elects unto salvation, but men have to exercise belief. And again, the bottom line with the nation of Israel, right? Because in the context of uh, Romans 9, uh, there's so many Gentiles that have come to faith in Christ. Why have the Jews rejected Christ? Why have the Jews rejected the gospel? That's what Paul's answering. And again, the bottom line with the nation of Israel is as with any other individual uh, on a personal level, uh, men are lost because they refuse to repent, right? Men are lost because they refuse to repent, they refuse to believe. They refuse to accept Christ as God's only provision <clears throat> for salvation. Men are lost because they love their own sin. Uh, they, they are trapped in their own unbelief. That's what keeps sinners away from Christ. That's what keeps them away from grace and God's, God's mercy, uh, John three nineteen, the light is coming to the world, and men what love darkness, right? They love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. That's the issue. So when men reject uh, God's way of salvation, found the person of Jesus Christ, uh, or they do reject the person the, God's way of salvation uh, through the person of Jesus Christ, because men always want to do something. I mentioned that this morning. <clears throat> Excuse me, men want to do something to earn their salvation, and we'll see that in part in the verses as we work our way through the text. Uh, but again, all through the book of Romans, <coughs> excuse me, the uh, issue has been uh, one word. Remember the key word through the book of Romans? It's the word what? Righteousness. It's the word righteousness. Righteousness is what we need. Righteousness is what men need to be acceptable before God. Righteousness that we do not possess. Uh, the word righteousness <coughs> is used some 35 times in about 30 uh, different verses in the book of Romans. Uh, in the Greek, it's dikaiosune. Uh, it's just righteousness, the standard that God requires for men in order to stand in his presence. And that standard is absolute perfection. And <clears throat> men can never uh, achieve that in and of themselves. Uh, in and of themselves, men can never work up perfection in their own strength. Uh, men need a perfect righteousness that comes only by faith in a perfect Savior, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, and a righteousness that is given to men as a gift of God's grace, never earned, never worked for. So if a man is going to stand before a holy God, he needs that righteousness that comes from outside him, of himself. Uh, some of the older theologians used to refer to it as an alien uh, righteousness, not like little green men with little pointy things on their head, <clears throat> but an alien outside of themselves. 
So we need this righteousness. We need this righteousness that comes from the righteous one, the holy one, that being the Lord Jesus Christ. So look back here, and let me just kind of pick up just a couple of verses at the end of Romans 9 <clears throat> to show you how Paul understood that. How Paul understood that men needed righteousness they don't possess, but his dear brothers, the Jews, didn't. Look at verse 30. Romans 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness is which by faith. So again, the Gentiles weren't seeking salvation. Why, why, are so many, why are so many Gentiles believing the gospel? Because they're believing the gospel. God had ordained that. They weren't seeking it, but nevertheless they found it. Why? Because they, just like all men who believe the gospel, became object of God's just amazing grace. And you remember all the way back in the Old Testament, Abraham believed God, and what happened with Abraham? Abraham believed God, and God counted it as what? Righteousness, right? So again, righteousness is what we need. Righteousness is what all men need to stand in the presence of God. And it only comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone. So basically, the gospel is proclaimed, and the Gentiles believed the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They repented of their sin, and they converted. They attained a righteousness, uh, even uh, the righteousness which is by faith. Now, the Jews, on the other hand, why are there so many Gentiles believing? Because they believed, right? Why are the Jews not believing? Because they're trying to work for their righteousness. They're trying to work for, for right standing before God. They're trying to earn their righteousness. Look at verse 31. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at the law. Verse 32, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. So again, the Bible says very clearly, all men stand united in one position. Men are all, all men are, are sinners. And the Bible says very clearly, by the works of the law, no one will ever be justified. No man can ever work for or earn his salvation. What every man needs is a Savior. And again, salvation comes by grace alone. So every man who is ever saved or ever has been saved or ever will be saved is a debtor to grace. And in God's plan of salvation, that's the way he ordained it. He ordained, he ordained salvation through the person of Jesus Christ by grace alone. Therefore, that humbles man's pride. Humbles man's pride. And pride, again, is the root of all sin. It's the root of our rebellion against God. And the fact is that uh, God, um, if he saves, uh, he saves only by grace and, and apart from works. And that, again, is a humbling truth for the sinner who's always trying to earn or work for their salvation. And that's what the Jews are doing. The, the Jews thought they could earn their salvation. The Jews thought they could uh, reject Christ and work their way to heaven. So they missed him. They set him apart. They, they didn't see, like many men today, they didn't see any need of Christ. They didn't see any need of God's dear son, mankind's only hope. Again, verse 32 says they stumbled. Right? They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, verse 33, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling, and a, rock of offense, a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And again, the gospel is always that way. The person of Christ is always that way. The natural man hates the gospel because he want, doesn't want to be told that he's a sinner. He hates the gospel because he's told that there's nothing that he can do to save himself. Therefore, he hates Christ because Christ is presented before him as the only option for salvation. And again, the Bible says that repeatedly, that there's salvation found in no other name under heaven that has been given among men except the person of Jesus Christ. And he who believes in him, uh, it says again in verse 33 there, he will not be disappointed. So again, the stumbling stone, the rock of offense is, in a, is a person in him. That's the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who believes in Christ will not be disappointed. 
Now, Paul quotes that at the end of Romans 9 here. He quotes that out of the book of Isaiah because he's declaring the fact that, again, long before Christ physically came to the earth, some 750 years or so, he said, God said, that's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. Israel's going to reject Christ, the stumbling stone. Israel's going to reject the only provision they have of salvation. So again, you back up a little bit, try to come up a little bit from the story, and you go, why, why are so many uh, uh, Gentiles believing the gospel? Why are so many Jews rejecting the gospel? It's not that God's word has failed, but the reality is God, the, Israel's unbelief at the moment in the gospel actually confirms exactly what God said was going to happen. Nothing catches God by surprise. Israel's unbelief didn't catch God by surprise. And Israel's unbelief didn't nullify God's plan. It doesn't cause him to reject his people whom he has set his love upon. Israel, who uh, he has loved uh, above all of the other nations of the world as a group of people. He hasn't rejected them and he hasn't replaced them. Again, this is all what God said was going to happen. So again, Israel's unbelief confirms the word of God. Confirms the word of God. God's love and his promises to his nation of the people of Israel are unfailing. We've gone through that several times. They're true. They're in a current state of unbelief. That's true, but that's part of the plan. And part of the plan is that in their current state of unbelief, God is going to save a remnant for himself who one day will be reunited, reunited with their king, and they'll come to embrace Jesus as their Messiah, the only Savior of the world. That's what God's Word says. Now chapter 10. Again, verse 1 says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they do not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So again, Paul is continuing the theme. Uh, He's explaining the nation of Israel and God's plan. And now he's focusing on Israel's failure, or really Israel's ignorance. Because the gospel puts a premium on truth. And those who perish do so because they did not receive the love of the truth as to be saved. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10. Right? People who perish, perish because they don't love the truth. On the other hand, those who are saved uh, are saved by the Spirit and faith in the truth. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. Now, no matter how religious or sincere a person may be, those who rely on their own knowledge, their own understanding, to make themselves right before God are destined for judgment. And no more people than the Jews put an emphasis on religious truth. But sadly, they allowed their Jewish tradition to be confused with the declaration of the Word of God uh, from the Old Testament text. Therefore, traditions taught by rabbis usurped and replaced the authority of the Word of God. And over the years, they introduced more and more tradition taught by the rabbis, and the nation of Israel began to believe that they could earn their righteousness they needed through their religious activity. Where'd they get that from? They didn't get it from the Word of God. They got it from their teaching, from their rabbinical, their, 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 their rabbinical teaching that was taught in error. You see, well, how do you know that? Well, because I, I read the New Testament. That's how I know most of the things I say up here, right? Think about Paul himself, right? Before he came to a true knowledge of the truth, he was a religious zealot, right? 
He told the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 4, I thought myself, <clears throat> I myself might have uh, uh, confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else might have a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, as Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is found in the law, blameless, right? Blameless. Well, until he met Christ. He met the risen Christ, and then he saw the fact that he was what? A sinner. Desperately in need of a Savior. And what he had previously believed about means of salvation, or the method of salvation, he came to understand that was all false. All these great things. Circumcised on the eighth day, tribe of the nation of Israel, Hebrew of Hebrews, law, keeping it all became evident to him that it was false. He confesses that openly to <clears throat> Timothy. He says, First uh, Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, <clears throat> even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. And yet, listen, yet I was shown mercy. Here it is, because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Acted ignorantly in unbelief. All spiritual ignorance is due to unbelief. And Paul makes that very clear. He makes it very clear of his own past and, and rejection of the truth which brings spiritual ignorance concerning the person of God, person of Christ. So again, back in Romans 9, Paul was focusing on God's sovereignty and election and on God's, or the elect's response to that call by faith. And again, Paul knew that not every single Jew had been elected. Not every single Jew had been single, every single Jew had been elected into salvation. So he begins this chapter 10 of the book of Romans with a tremendous amount of sorrow, sorrow a tremendous amount of compassion for his unbelieving Jewish brothers, his kinsmen according to the flesh. So he prays for them. <clears throat> he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Again, he's restating that compassion that he has for them, a, a, an earnest desire and, and an earnest prayer to God for Israel's salvation. Now, a lot of chapter 9 right, was on the doctrine of election. God does what he, God, what he does, chooses who he chooses, has mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy upon. But that doesn't negate our responsibility to prayer for the salvation of the lost. And Paul understood that. Nobody understood more clearly the, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God in salvation that, than Paul did. <clears throat> but he didn't try to rationalize or recognize some, some uh, seemingly uh, seeming incongruity between God's sovereign election and man's willing faith. He demonstrates just a genuine compassion for for the lost, a deep desire for their salvation, and he earnestly prays for them. Because, again, there's no contradiction between God's sovereign election and our heartfelt prayer for the lost. Our responsibility is not try to determine who the lost are or who the, the elect are among the lost. Our, our responsibility is just to proclaim the gospel and then pray that God, through his kindness, will open the hearts of those and they will hear it. So that's what Paul does. He prays that God will work in their hearts, the nation of Israel, they will receive Christ, and they'll be saved. They'll believe that God, our Savior, desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, as he says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. So again, Paul has a tremendous compassion for the, the nation of Israel, that they would come to an understanding of the gospel because they're lost in unbelief. And then Paul begins to describe why they're lost. Here's the reason, verse 2. For I bear them witness, they have a zeal for God. Here it is, but not in accordance with knowledge. That's why it's difficult for religious people to get saved. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. 
Now, a zeal for God is a good thing if it's, in the, if it's rightly directed. It's a tragic thing when it drives a person in the wrong direction religiously, and Paul knew that. Again, there was no one more zealous in his religious system than Paul was in his Jewish religion before he came uh, to faith in Christ. There was no, more, no one more zealous than he. More, he was more, more zealous than all of his contemporaries. And that resulted in him persecuting the church. Galatians 1 verse 13. He said, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. There's no more zealous guy for Judaism than Paul. He persecuted the church to prove it. In fact, when he's on trial, he goes before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. He says, So then I thought myself, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but they were also being put to death. I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues. I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. That's a guy who's zealous for his religious tradition. Just like many Jehovah's Witnesses and many Mormons and many Muslims. They're zealous for, quote-unquote, God, the God as they understand him. Men, the Muslims' zeal for their God causes them to kill, to kill anybody and everybody, especially Christians who profess faith in Christ. But their zeal only compounds or increases their condemnation because to have a zeal for God but not in accordance with knowledge is a dangerous thing. Now, again, the Jews had religion, but they didn't have righteousness. They had more spiritual blessing than any other nation on the planet, but they were lost. So again, Paul has a desire that they would be saved. And the only, one, and the only way that anybody can be saved is come to a knowledge of the truth. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. One commentator says this, The Jews had a certain degree or kind of knowledge, which is gnosis in the Greek, an intellectual awareness of the outward demands of God's law, but they did not have a discerning spiritual knowledge or epignosis. He says that only comes from a saving relationship with God. They had a kind of superficial religious knowledge that causes pride and arrogance, but not the godly knowledge that both comes from and is produced, uh, comes from and produces humility and holiness. They just had an outward form. They had a knowledge, but not a true knowledge. And again, Paul knew that. How did he know that? He knew that by experience. He was a Pharisee, right? And he knew that most of the Jews at the uh, time uh, of, uh, that he was a Pharisee were very religious, but again, they're very far from God. Verse 3, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. It's a tragic statement. It's a tragic statement just on one level, but it's a tragic statement for Israel on a whole because they, of all the nations of the world, they had the immense privilege of having directly received the Word of God. They had the immeasurable privilege of receiving directly the Word of God, first in the written Word of the Scripture and then in the living Word incarnate, God's own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, but tragically they missed Him. 
Therefore, Israel is willingly and inexcusably ignorant of God's holiness. They're willingly and inexcusably ignorant of God's purity. Will, willfully and inexcusably ignorant of the truth. And disobedient to what has already been revealed. Again, remember back or just look back there at the end of uh, chapter 9, verse 31. It says, Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, <clears throat> but as though it were by works, and they stumbled over the stumbling stone. I mean, all through the Old Testament, God taught over and over again that salvation was always by faith apart from works. And again, Israel was entrusted with the very oracles of God, the Word of God. Therefore, they knew that. And God made every effort in the Old Testament to bring Israel to himself, but they continued to reject God. They continued to reject his Word. They continued to reject the Savior. And again, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. And again, Israel's ignorance is willing. And Israel's ignorance is inexcusable. Verse 3 again, for not knowing... Or, or being willfully ignorant about God's righteousness, here it is, and seeking to establish their own. The King James says going about to establish their own righteousness. Seeking to establish their own. The, the word seeking there just means by effort, by striving to obtain. Seeking to establish their own righteousness, right? Seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Hupatasso, uh, subject, rank, under. Get in line, subject, obey. Again, in spite of the clear teaching of the Scripture about the holiness of God, about the sinfulness of mankind, the Jews ignorantly refused to believe and understand the truth about God's righteousness. They, they refused to line up under. They refused to subject themselves to God's righteous standards. And rather, what they did, they just created their own false standard of righteousness. They, they worked to obtain a salvation which could never happen, right? They worked to try to get at a salvation that could never happen in their own effort. Therefore, they stumbled and fell over the person of Christ. And because they tried to work for salvation and stumble over the person of Christ, they never obtained the salvation that they were working for. That's all due to spiritual pride. It's all due to spiritual pride because the Jews thought God was less holy and less righteous than he actually is. And the Jews thought they could bring down God's holiness and God's purity down to their own sinful level. And again, sadly, most of the Jews at Paul's times considered themselves to be pleasing in God's sight just because they were Jews, just because they were God's ancient chosen people. And for the same reason, they taught that many of the rabbinical traditions had been substituted themselves for the word of God. So again, they were willfully ignorant of God's righteousness. Therefore, they had no understanding of their own, listen, their own unrighteousness. They wrongly believed they were more holy, more holy and more righteous than they actually were. And they thought they could make up whatever they lacked by their own good works, measured, of course, by their own standard of good and their own standard of righteousness. That's the very same reason why many of our friends, many of our family members, many of our coworkers that we have inter, uh, interaction with can't see their need of Christ. They may have some general knowledge of God, but it's not based on truth. 
It's not based on the revelation of God found in the Scripture regarding the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, they can't see their need of a deliverer because they're ignorant willfully about God's righteousness. They're willfully ignorant about their own unrighteousness. They falsely think they can achieve in their own effort or by their own effort that which they lack to make them stand before holy God. Therefore, they reject the truth, they reject the righteousness of God, and they reject the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Common malady amongst men, right? For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Again, that's an eternally, that's an eternally fatal spiritual flaw of unbelieving mankind. He thinks his efforts are good enough. Therefore, again, they stumble over the stumbling stone, the Lord Jesus Christ. They see no need of him. But again, that's an eternally fatal mistake. Again, all through the Old Testament, that reality is repeated. God, through the prophet Isaiah, says in Isaiah 64, verse 6, he says, all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Again, the Jews should have known that because they had the word of God. They could read that. They could read Genesis 15, 6. It says, he, speaking of Abram, Abraham, he believed in the Lord and he reckoned to him as righteousness. They could read, the righteous will live by his faith, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. So again, the ignorance of the Jews is not because of lack of information. It's a willful ignorance that stems from pride. Think about in the New Testament when Christ confronted these guys. The Pharisees proudly thought that they were keeping the law of God because they didn't what? They didn't murder. And Jesus says, well, look, your standard's not high enough. Jesus says, look, just being angry with someone makes you guilty of the, uh, before God, guilty enough to cast you into the eternal hellfire. Pharisees thought they were pretty good because they didn't commit adultery. And again, Jesus comes and he convicts them and says, you're not, your standard's not high enough. You're guilty before God. Because if you just have lust in your heart, that's the same as committing the act. That's the problem with religious people. That's the problem with religiously proud Jews. Uh, again, all people who reject Christ, they do not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Because if you subject yourself to the righteousness of God, then you have to admit... You're a sinner, and you need a Savior, and the good works can never justify you. But religiously, religious people don't want to do that. Religious people always, wanted to be, always want to be credited for their good deeds. Therefore, they reject Christ, they reject grace, they reject the righteousness that they need to stand before a holy God. So again, the bottom line is religious people who miss salvation do so because they don't trust Christ. And they don't trust Christ as their own righteousness. Verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now the word end is telos. It means literally end, termination. Now men have been discussing verse 4 and the exact meaning of verse 4 and arguing over this for about 2,000 years. So I don't know if I'm going to answer all the questions tonight, but I'll give you a quick shot at it. The problem with verse 4 that has caused such uh, discussion surrounds the word end and the word law as to their exact meaning. Now again, the word end, E-N-D, right, is telos in the Greek. Nomos is the word law. But the problem with the word end, we'll start there, that little word telos, it has more than one meaning. 
Charles Hodge, a 19th century American theologian, probably does the best to reduce down the possible meanings for the word end, and he brings it down to the three ideas that are manageable. I'll give them to you and then kind of work through them, so don't, don't get lost here, all right? Hodge says, first, it can mean end in the sense of the object to which the thing leads. Second, it can mean the completion or the fulfillment of something. This is the word end. Or third, it can mean the end or the termination of something. So you have three different meanings for one very simple word, E-N-D. Hodge says, if you apply the first meaning of end to the verse, uh, you would end up with something along these lines. Christ is the end of the law, inasmuch as the law is the schoolmaster or the tutor that leads us to Christ. We get that, Galatians 3.24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. So the law, the, the, the entirety of the Old Testament, with all of its prophecies, types, promises, rituals, ceremonies, all those stuff, the commands... Pointing us to the person of Christ. Uh, Colossians 2, verse 17. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So it's all pointing us to Christ. Christ is the end. So the meaning here would be that the Jews made a mistake of seeking to be justified by keeping the law or all the, all the rules, which is something they couldn't do because God demands perfection and nobody can perfectly keep God's law and nobody can perfectly obey it at all times. Therefore, the Jews made a mistake of seeking justification or right standing before God by the way of their own effort and trying to keep, again, the law. But again, the problem is the law was never given for that. The law was never given in the Old Testament to men to justify them. Rather, the law was given to show men their need of a Savior. The law was given to expose sin and man's utter inability to do everything that God completely and totally asked him. For example, God gave ten, ten Commandments, right? And the first one is you will have what? No other gods before me. So if any moment of your life, at any time, even for a second, you put something or someone at a higher level than God himself, you've broken that commandment. Don't even need to go to the other nine because you're already guilty as being a lawbreaker. But again, the law was not given to save or to justify the law was given to expose our need the law was given to lead us to christ to to teach us of our need of grace to teach us of our need of a savior Uh, again the law given in order to take us to the person of christ that christ might save and not good works but the jews completely missed it but again if christ is the end of the law to take us to that place where we see our need of him that Christ is the object to which the law points because we can't obey it, that's a good understanding that Hodge puts forward as a first understanding of the word end. Hodge goes on and says, look, there's a second use of the word end. It means the completion or the fulfillment of something. And I think that too has merit. Christ is the end of the law and that he fulfills the law's requirements. He fulfills all the types and ceremonies and legal demands of the Old Testament. I mean, Christ himself says in Matthew 5, verse 17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Romans 8, 3, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
So again, Christ says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. That's not a bad understanding of the word end. Christ is the end of the law in, sense, in the sense that he only fulfills the law. He fulfills all it says. He fulfills all it requires. But again, the law could not produce righteousness in us because of the weakness of our flesh. Therefore, God did what the law could not do through Christ. That, again, is fulfill the law. We who walk in accord, we walk, uh, all of us who walk in accord to the Spirit. Now, mo- most commentators, I would say a lot of commentators, many commentators, they like that understanding the second uh, uh, understanding of the word end. But again, remember I told you Hodge has a third one. And he says that the word end means uh, termination. Christ has abolished the law not by destroying it, but by fulfilling it. And, and because he's fulfilled it, the Old Testament economy has come to an end. It's been terminated. It's uh, met its completion in Christ. The era is over. That's also a pretty good point. Now, I think some people take it, well, I know some people take it a bit too far. They wrongly uh, insist that under the Old Testament law, under the Old Testament dispensations, men were saved one way, but now under the New Testament dispensation, people are saved another way. Under the Old Testament, keep the law. Under the New Testament, by grace. But that's simply not true. I was having a conversation with somebody uh, about that very thing this morning. It's simply not true. Nevertheless, men teach it. I've actually heard men teach this error in, in Sunday school classes in a, in a church that I was a, a guest preacher in. It's, a correct, uh, it's an incorrect understanding of the word end. Again, verse 4, Paul says, Christ is the end of the law. Here it is for righteousness. Now, I think the term law, again, has, is the way Paul is referring to, in the most general sense, all the Old Testament. Everything in it, all the law of Moses in general, the demands, the types, the symbols, the sacrifices, the feasts, etc., all of the Old Testament, the law of Moses pointed forward, all of it was really a shadow of the reality coming in the person of Jesus Christ. So for Christ is the end of the law, here it is, for righteousness. So if we're going to try to figure out what end means, what E-N-D means, uh, we need to understand it in terms of righteousness that Christ provides. So Christ is the end of the law in that he is the object which the law is pointed, that's true. And Christ is the end of the law and that he fulfills the law's requirements. He fulfills all the types and ceremonies and legal demands of the Old Testament law. That's true. But does the fact that Christ is the substance of the shadows, the fact that he is the one who has historically fulfilled all the Old Testament types, ceremonies, legal demands, etc., do those facts provide us with righteousness? And that, I would say, I don't think so. I don't think so. Now, some would disagree with me because some would come and say, well, look, you know, they'd start talking about Christ's act of obedience. That he carefully and deliberately kept all the law of Moses in all respects, and because he did that, he, his act of obedience, fulfilling the law, is now credited to our account. Okay. I hear that, but I'm still not convinced that what's Paul, that's what Paul is talking about here in, in the context. And what about the meaning that Christ is the end of the termination of the law, meaning that he has fulfilled it and the Old Testament economy era is over? That's also true, but I don't think that's even the point that Paul's trying to make here. All all of the definitions have some merit of truth, some points of truth, but I think, which you knew I was going to tell you because that's what I do, I think the best way to understand what Paul is saying here is that he, when he says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, I think he's saying to us we need to realize that ultimately Christ is the only way to receive the righteousness we need to stand in the presence of God. 
Christ is the end of the law. He's the only way to receive the righteousness we need to stand before God. Christ is the only place. He is the end of the road, so to speak. He is the end, listen, he is the end of all of our doing. He is the end of all of our trying. He is the end of all of our vain, futile efforts to obtain uh, righteousness by our own useless, imperfect acts and attempts to fulfill the law. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Now, the Jews, again, just like every fallen man, they're vainly trying to do something to earn righteousness. They're vainly trying to do something to make themselves pleasing to God. But again, the prophet in the Old Testament, Isaiah 64, verse 6, says, All of us have become like one who's unclean. All of our, our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like the leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. The prophet is saying the very best we can do in our fallen condition is to achieve a righteousness that is on the equivalent of something that is vile, foul, filthy, and polluted. Filthy rags. You can ask me later, but I won't tell you from the pulpit because the reference is something un- to something that is unspeakably foul. The very best, the prophet says, that we can do before our holy God by our own efforts is to produce something that is unspeakably foul, corrupt, vile to the greatest degree. But the good news of the gospel of the free grace of God is in Christ is that God has done for us in Christ what we could not do for ourselves. That is to make us righteous, to make us holy, to make us able to stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ himself. That's the glorious good news of the gospel of free grace. That you do, you do not have to do anything to earn it. You do not have to do anything to work for it. It's free. And it's absolutely free. And it's available for all who will believe. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Next phrase to everyone who believes. Simple as that. How is that? How is Christ the end of the law to everyone who believes? Well, we talk about this verse a lot. 2 Corinthians 5.21 This is how God pulled that off. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God took all of our sin and placed it on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, he who knew no sin, in order that we might be the righteousness of God in him. He took our sin and thought of our sin as belonging to Christ and transferred our sin to the person of Christ and and, and imputed our sins to the person of Christ and treated Christ who, although he is sinless, treated him as as if he had committed all of our sins, all the sins of all who had ever believe throughout time and he placed all of our sin on christ in order that we might become the righteousness of god in him so in order to do that that he might impute to us credit to christ as again um he was sinful he credits to christ our sin and he credits to us christ's what christ's righteousness right he gives us the, the, the imputed righteousness of the lord jesus christ it's tremendously good news so again, Jesus Christ is the eternally righteous one. He's, he's uh, the only righteous one. And his righteousness is imputed or credited to our account. Our sin to his account, his righteousness to our account. That's, that's substitution. That's substitution. And that's made available by God by a free gift so that we can stand before a holy God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Here it is that we might become the righteousness of God in him, the substitute. Now it's called the doctrine of imputation. 
honest, honest. How many times, how many sermons have you heard on the uh, Christian radio station lately about imputation? Shall I wait? Probably not many, right? It's a doctrine, sadly, like a lot of doctrines, has fallen on tough times. In part because there are many, supposedly in our camp, who say that imputation doesn't exist. I'm not sure why they do that, but they do. Romans 4, 3, for what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Romans 4, verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Reckoned is in the Greek word, it's a legizomai. Reckon, consider, count, credit, regard. And the ESV, uh, the Deacon's Bible, as I heard earlier, in uh, Romans 4, it says, David speaks also, yeah, think about it, you'll get it in a half hour after we're done. Uh, David speaks also the blessings of the one whom God has counted righteous, or God counts righteous apart from works. NIV credits righteousness apart from works. And the one that uh, Paul used when he preached uh, the King James, it says, imputeth righteousness without works. That's the word, imputeth. So that's where we get the doctrine of imputation. Christ was sinless. God treated him as if he committed our sins by imputing or reckoning, crediting our sins to him. We're sinful, we're guilty, but God treats us as if we're innocent, as if we're holy by imputing or reckoning to us Christ's righteousness, crediting to us Christ's righteousness. That's the, that's the great exchange. Theologians would call it the great exchange. It's good news. Now, the key to understanding the doctrine of imputation is to understand that God declares us just and God declares us right before him. Listen, not based on our, on our actual condition of righteousness or holiness, but based on Christ's perfect character, his perfect righteousness, his perfect holiness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's the end in the sense he's the ultimate source for everyone who believes. So we who believe, we can stop trying and we can start trusting. We don't have to work for it. We just believe the truth. We just believe what God says to be true. We believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done for us. And when a sinner repents and trusts in Christ alone for their salvation, again, Christ's righteousness is given to the sinner as a gift of his grace. Again, Paul already said that earlier in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Again, salvation comes to no one by working for it. But again, Israel, ignorant of God's standard of righteousness, ignorant of God's holiness, ignorant of God's uh, uh, provision for men through Christ, ignorant also the proper place of faith. They willingly refuse to believe the truth. Consequently, they cut themselves off. They cut themselves off from the only place where they could find the righteousness of God that they needed, that they so desperately needed to be saved. They cut themselves off from the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, there is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. Period exclamation mark, end the paragraph, close the book, go sit down. There's no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. 
and they cut themselves off from the salvation, the righteousness they needed to stand before God. Now, before we move further on to the text, I'm going to stop here just for a moment because I want to talk about this doctrine of the imputed, uh, imputed righteousness of Christ. And I think it needs to be said a little bit further. Uh, in, in Romans 5.1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have Christ's righteousness. And having Christ's righteousness or being justified by faith, listen, doesn't change us internally in the sense that we never sin. Doesn't do that. We're declared righteous by the holy God of the universe because of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're imputed the righteousness of the person of Jesus Christ, but that doesn't change us internally in the sense that we, from that moment forward, never sin. That's a Roman Catholic doctrine, and it's biblically incorrect. The Roman Catholics teach that we are justified not on the basis of the imputed righteousness, but here it is, infused, the infused righteousness of Christ. They say that when God justifies us, he actually puts righteousness in us, and that changes us internally in the actual, uh, in the terms of our actual moral character, and some people have more, quote-unquote, infused righteousness than others. Some have more, some have less. But again, that's not true biblically. And people who believe that, tr- that uh, doctrine that's not true biblically, people who believe that false teaching are never certain if they are here would be the phrase, in a state of grace or not. They're never certain that they have the right amount of grace they need, the right amount of holiness they need to stand before God. Because in their human weakness, they could have done something and have lost it. That's why Roman Catholicism puts a great emphasis on works and penance. One of their theologians says this, Ludwig Ott, O-T-T, says, Nobody can with certainty of faith know whether or not he has fulfilled all the conditions which are necessary for achieving a justification. Well, not only is that a tremendously sad statement, but it's absolutely an untrue statement. We can know for truth, or, or we know the truth is, and we can know for certain that we have fulfilled all the conditions necessary for achieving justification because look what our text says. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The Bible says, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be what? Saved. The Bible says, Romans 4, 4, and out of the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as favor, but what is due him. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is logizomite. It's reckoned to him as righteousness. Imputed. The one who doesn't work but believes, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. So the truth is you can know for certain that you have the fully uh, uh, to achieve the full condition needed for a standing justification that God demands you to have before him if you stop trying and start trusting. Stop trying and start trusting. Believe what God says to be true. Because all the necessary conditions of your salvation have been met in the person of Jesus Christ. They are not based on your effort. They're not based on your righteousness, but based on His. His righteousness given to you, imputed to you, as a gift of God's grace, if you would only but believe. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now again, justification is a declaration of God based on faith, based upon believing in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't change us internally, doesn't make us 
more holy, but justification does provide us the righteousness we need to stand before God, clothed in His holiness, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, forgiven at peace with God. Paul, 1 Corinthians 1.30, by His doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Isn't that good? Christ is it. Paul said to the Philippians that sensing God's mercy, uh, he had his eyes open to the wonderful truth of the gospel and a true understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. He said, I have got one goal. And Paul didn't say, my one goal is to work harder. He said, my one goal is to be found in Christ. Philippians 3, verse 9, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Not going to work harder, just trust Christ. Now look, it bothers me a lot that the Roman Catholics don't have it right. But what really bothers me more is there are a lot of professing Christians that don't seem to have it right either. Because there are many professing Christians who live their life based on God's grace and then partly on their own effort, partly on their own merit or their own success in fighting sin. I certainly hope that we all have good success in fighting sin. That would be, that would be good. But your sin and my sin, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, have been, listen, paid for once for all time. Our sin has been paid past, present, and future once for all time upon Calvary's cross. Listen to Colossians 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us, here it is, all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which were hostile to us. He's taken out of the way or he's nailed it to the cross. All our transgressions. Another way that Paul would say that elsewhere in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, he would say what? There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Right? Our, our right standing before God is not based on our effort. It's not based on our merit. It's based on Christ, Christ alone. That is the tremendous good news of the gospel, of the free grace of God. The hymn writer puts it well. And says it in a fashion I think we need to remind ourselves on a daily basis. He says, My faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and he died for me. That's an understanding of grace. So I feel bad for professing Christians who claim that Jesus is their Savior, but yet they're living in... excuse me, the living in the bondage of performance. The living in the bondage of performance, just trying to, still trying to keep or earn their standing before God. And in doing so, what they've done is they've taken their eye off the most wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and they've placed their focus on themselves and their own performance. And God in Christ has come to declare the good news to set the captives free, to free us from the bondage of sin, to free us from the bondage of performance for grace. Christ has set us free to enjoy him. Again, not to place us under the yoke of a bondage to the law or some other kind of performance-based religion. That's Roman Catholicism. That's not biblical Christianity. God sets us free from the bondage of sin and death through Christ. 
And through Christ, listen, we will flee from sin. Through Christ, because of our salvation, we will have a desire to please Him and obey Him. Not perfectly. It's called sanctification. It's a process. Being conformed more and more, right? Every day to the image of Christ. And when we stumble, not if, when we stumble, when we fall down, all we have to do is what? 1 John 1, 9, confess our sins and he's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because Jesus Christ paid it all. Jesus Christ, again, has already paid for all of our sins, past, present, and future. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, again, the Jews failed, right? They, they, they failed. They refused to believe the truth. They refused to submit themselves by faith to the righteousness of God that God had provided freely through the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, they cut themselves off from their only hope of salvation. And to verify that fact, to verify the fact that God has always required men to believe as part of God's eternal plan of redemption, Paul turns to Moses and reminds the hearers of what Moses said in the past, verse 5. For Moses writes that a man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness, verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith speaks thus, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. So Paul says in these verses, there are two kinds of righteousness here that are being put forward, the righteousness of the law, and then the righteousness based on faith. And the righteousness of the law demands absolute perfection. To attain that righteousness. Again, verse 5, Moses writes that a man who practices righteousness based on the law shall live by that righteousness. That statement comes out of Leviticus uh, 18, verse 5. It says, So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments, by which a man shall live if he does them. I am the Lord. So the idea here is if a man is going to rely on his own effort, his own obedience to the law of God, he's going to be held accountable to everything the law demands. Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, Cursed uh, be he that confirmeth not to all the works of this law to do them. Right? You're going to be cursed if you don't conform to every word of the law to do every uh, thing the law says. Again, the righteousness which is based on the law demands absolute unconditional perfection. That's why James says in James chapter 2, verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law, yet it stumbles at one point, he's become guilty of all. Stumble at one point, break God's law just one time, then you're a lawbreaker. Sin just once in your entire life, and you're a sinner, cursed of God, because you failed to meet God's perfect standard of absolute perfection. And it's only the self-deceived who think they can do that. It's only the self-deceived who think they can keep or have kept God's law perfectly. Now again, in Paul's day, the Jews had replaced God's law. They lowered God's standard Again, they inserted their own rules, their own traditions, to the point where they had deceived themselves into believing if they only kept their rules to the best of their ability, then they were all right before God. But God doesn't require a good effort. God requires what? Absolute perfection. God demands absolute perfection. And no man lives up to the standard. And all the law does is bring condemnation. All the law does is bring condemnation. It doesn't redeem anybody. It saves no one. The law provides no mercy because all have sinned, right? And all have fallen short of the glory of God. For Moses writes 
that a man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. So again, righteousness based on the law is absolute perfection. But what does the righteousness based on faith say? Now, it starts out with a negative here. So how faith does not speak, verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith speaks, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven that is to bring Christ down or who will descend into the abyss that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Kind of an odd statement, right? Kind of. But it's another reference out of the Old Testament. It's a reference out of Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 through 14. Uh, Again, uh, appealing to the fact that the requirement of faith for salvation is nothing new. So Moses is speaking to the nation of Israel there in the context, and he says to them, if they obey God's commands and decrees, God will bless them. They had everything they needed to obtain salvation. They had his word. They, they, they didn't need any additional revelation. They already had it. And the word, again, declared to men over and over again that God deals with men by sovereign grace. And salvation and divine blessing have always come to men who believe, not to men who work. Abraham, what? Believed God, and God credited him as righteousness. Israel had that truth. They had that word, but they failed to believe it. And in the rebellion... And in belief, they decided to try to undertake the impossible. They decided to undertake the impossible rather than believe God. But God didn't ask them to work for their salvation, and God didn't ask them to do the impossible. Listen, God didn't even ask them to ascend or climb into heaven, if that is possible, which is not to get the Savior, right? God didn't ask them to do that. God didn't ask them to descend into the abyss or the pit, the depths of the sea, uh, in order to bring the Savior up to them. They didn't have to do the impossible. They didn't have to search the universe to, to, to find the righteousness they needed. And again, both those statements that are kind of quirky, to ascend or climb into heaven or to descend into the abyss, is somewhat of a proverbial expression declaring that which is clearly impossible. And God never asked the Jews, nor has God asked any man to undertake the impossible. God never asked the Jews or any other man to undertake that which is impossible or to perform by way of some tremendous effort in order to obtain righteousness and the eternal blessing of God. Because God, again, has already given to that, given that to men by Jesus Christ, through the person of Jesus Christ. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So again, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness is available to men, easily accessible by what? Believing. Verse 8, what does it say? Again, what does the righteousness based on faith say, or what does it speak? The word is near you in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. Verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So again, true faith doesn't ask for the impossible. True faith doesn't ask for men to work. True faith doesn't go around trying to uh, vainly establish one's own righteousness. Through faith leading to the righteousness found in the Word of God and found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where true faith is found. And true faith in the righteousness that Christ offers is granted freely and received by faith. Even under the Old Testament, all God asked men to do is what? Believe. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So men can claim God's mercy, men can claim God's grace simply by believing what God says to be true. Simply, as he just says there, by confessing with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And to confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, means you receive it in your heart and you actually believe it. 
And belief in the heart is joined with confession of the mouth that Jesus is Christ. He's God of very God. He's co-equal yet distinct from the Father. He deserves all praise and honor and glory as the God incarnate or God come in the flesh. And to confess Jesus as Lord not only demonstrates your belief in Him as God, but it demonstrates your belief in Him as the Savior of all men. The one who has the power over sin. The one who has the power over the devil. The one who has the power over death. The one who is a complete victor over all. The one who has conquered his enemies. The one whose enemies are under his feet. All of his enemies under his feet. That's the Lord. And to men he gives his righteousness. Gives it to us. Credit it to our account by faith alone. He's our Savior. He's the one who rescues us from punishment. God of very God. The Savior of mankind. And just an anecdotal statement real quick. No more than nonsense that divides the Savior from the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what God declared. We don't have the right to divide him. You can't divide him. It's nonsensical. It's nonsensical for men to say you can receive him as your rescuer, but deny him as Lord and refuse to obey him. That's simply not true. He's the source of salvation to those who obey him. Hebrews 5.9. So if you desire God's righteousness, you want to be able to uh, take your stand in eternity before a, a holy God blameless, then you have to stop working and start what? Trusting. Start believing. Verse 9, simply confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. Victory over sin. Victory over death. Believe with your mouth. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Verse 10, and you will be saved, verse 10, for with the heart a man believes, resulting in righteousness, with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So many um, uh, in Israel, just like men today, failed to believe. Israel had the book. Israel had the book that contained the way of eternal life. Failed to read it. They failed to understand it rightly. Just like many men today, therefore they were lost. And I certainly hope that's not true of any of you here tonight. I have good news that you can have your sin forgiven. And absolutely know that for sure for all of eternity. It's readily accessible for you, you on a personal level. Look again, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what? you shall be saved. God's law demands perfection. The righteousness found in Christ only demands your belief. Not your perfection, not your effort, not some impossible task. Righteousness and forgiveness of sin is near. It's in your, near as your mouth, it's near as your heart. If you simply cry out to God for mercy and believe upon his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Isn't that good news? Our faith has found a resting place, right? It's found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the end of all self-effort, the end of righteousness. Our Father, we're so thankful for our time together in this uh, rather quick and full look at uh, Romans 10, at least his first 10 verses, and we're thankful for that righteousness that we find not in our own effort, but find in the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you for that tremendous good news. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for your salvation, your mercy that is rich and free for all who would simply believe. We honor you. We praise you. Thank you for a great day of worship. In Jesus' name, amen.